Hello, everyone, and welcome to Girls Like Us, the podcast that asks the question, what does a degree in literature get you with the answer, a podcast about children's books. I'm Franny. I'm Sophie. And uh, it's October, y'all. Y'all. It's friggin' spooky season. Yeah, and I've you you all know I've gone on record and I say I specifically the the holiday of Halloween is I don't like you know I don't like the observance of it. It's it's not like because I don't like the it's black sinful. orange. It's not that it's sinful. It's because I don't like the black orange purple color combo. Yeah, I think it's tacky. I don't want it in my house. Yeah. Um, How do you feel? What is the least? I'm just going to say something for a minute. Please. Just like off of this train of thought is that I'm thinking of like all the major holidays in my head. Sure. I can name five, I think, really fucking tacky ones off the top of my head. Fourth of July. Horrible. That's a bad color combo. Christmas is a bad color combo. Well, okay. So this is where you get into dicey territory because if we're talking about not just Christmas as the iconic red and green color combo, which, first of all, where does that come from? Don't tell me because I'm not interested. Um, <laughs> Christmas, Why, my dear? It was the holiday. Yeah, that no, shut the fuck up. I'm, I will end this podcast forever if someone tries to tell me what the red and green color combo from Christmas comes from. Someone tries to tell you the meaning of Christmas? No. Do not. These are the things I don't want any listeners of our podcast telling me ever. Um, one... The color combo of Christmas and why it's red and green. Don't tell me that. Two, if I share a legal opinion from my five weeks of law school on the podcast, (laughs) don't try to correct me on it. Like, I'm not, you are not my professor. This is not an exam. The whole point of law is making shit up to punish people. And if I want to make something up to punish the listeners of this podcast, I'm allowed to do that. And third would be my recent opinion that is coming out or by this time it's already out on our Patreon about uh, how women don't eat pancakes unless they're under duress. Don't correct me on that. I'm not interested. Um, So this is what I want to say, though, calling out kind of this Christmas Mm -hmm. idea is red and green is not, you know, like not all Christmas decorations are red and green. Like I I love to decorate for Christmas in my home, but I'm doing like white lights and like red yes. and like kind of more like an undertone of like coldness rather than going for like the red and green. Right. But I am going to say that I think like if we took a survey and we asked people like what the number one Christmas color combo was, red and green would be No, like that's now, what I, it is. I, I, and I think, yeah. And just like thinking in like Hallmark terms, like like the classic colors. I would also say Easter, pastels. I like a pastel. Many pastels together, maybe bad. Very much like a baby. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. This is where we also get into dicey territory because it's like there's no iconic Easter color combo as like Halloween is black, orange, and purple for some ungodly reason. Like black, Mm -hmm. orange, purple. That's what you, when you go, when you Google Halloween, that's what comes up. And Mm -hmm. so, Easter, it's just pastels. Like, so that's more of like a dealer's choice of like, you can pick which (laughs) pastel you like. And like, you really have, it's like a share your own destiny. It's not, it's not prescribed in the same way Halloween is. Now the good color combos, Thanksgiving, that flows together very well. Um, and I think that we yeah, both abide by the— it's just fall foliage. It's just fall foliage. And I think that's that's what we abide by when we decorate for Halloween, both of us, if we've talked about this previously. Not Thanksgiving in particular, I just choose but, not to decorate for Halloween. Yeah. Um, Hanukkah? Hanukkah's a great one. Good color combo. Tasteful. And then, obviously, Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day is 
the best holiday, my favorite holiday, I will say. And I think I just discovered that about myself while that was coming out of my mouth. Valentine's Day is an incredible holiday. You know why? Because it's not about shared family anything. It's about— <laughs> You actually are probably don't have to see your family yeah, on Valentine's it's, Day. It's maybe a holiday where you're discouraged from spending close, intimate time with your family. Exactly. It's about candy, and it's not mm-hmm. not in a childish way like Halloween. In Halloween a, in is— erotic way. Exactly. <laughs> and there's nothing more erotic to me than— Like, this is what Valentine's Day is for me. And once again, we're doing a Halloween podcast right now, but all that I yes. want to talk about is Valentine's Day. So I want to take— What's your— Well, love. Love is related to this And book. it is— well, Yeah, exactly. So this is what I—, I just yeah. want your quick— your quick Let's do a Valentine's Day take really quick because this is what my Valentine's Day usually looks like is Mm -hmm. no sex, bed. (laughs) I get like the best. Nick got me a weighted blanket for Valentine's Day, our first or I think our second Valentine's Day together. That's a good one. Nick bought me a weighted blanket. We went and ate a huge dinner, came home, ate candy under the weighted blanket. And that's what we've done, like, Mm. every year since. We get a giant dinner, and then we get in bed. And he doesn't, you know, Nick doesn't really partake in the candy experience because he has a very Mm -hmm. sensitive digestive system. But he, we get dinner, he pays for it, then I get to eat candy in bed. And nobody touches me. That's the (laughs) biggest part is that I don't have to put out. You're kind of in your own wrapper, your own candy wrapper. Exactly. Of yourself. Yeah, I, you know, Valentine's Day is a fun, silly holiday. I mean, in celebrating it with Meg, you know, our anniversary is right around here. So it's generally, so like, for instance, like in 2019, I think our Valentine's Day thing was that we went and saw Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey, and 4DX. Incredible. And it, and it was amazing. Except 40X that the 40X is a holiday thing. Except that I was this kind. The only thing that kind of blunted the experience was that the smell part of the 40X wasn't working, so I didn't get to smell. What I know, Can't I was you get really a refund. Mad. I sh- I should have honestly. I should have said it should have smelled like birds in that theory. Birds eater. Well, theory. there's like this huge sequence where she gets a breakfast sandwich, and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and nothing, nothing happened. That's fucked up. <laughs> also, move that movie was still boring, and the fact that it was still boring in 40X, I think, says something about. Yeah, it. that's really, really problematic. Uh, cancel yeah. her. Um, all right. <laughs> Speaking of uh, the language of desire Cancelable. and cancelable <laughs> stuff and spookiness and unnecessary holidays, guys, it's October. For the whole month of October, we will be covering all four Twilight books every week. So this week, obviously, we're doing the first one, and then you know we'll go through the series. We've got some really fun guests lined up. And then on our Patreon, if you're not yet a Patreon mm-hmm. subscriber, we will be doing all of the movies. So... Don't miss out on this one because it's it's going to be a crazy jam-packed month. I, I'm honestly not even sure how we're going to do it. Um, but we are kicking off this week with Twilight. So, Franny, I'm just going to go ahead and get the ball rolling. Do you know anything about the origin story of Twilight? In fact, I do. And I, I would love to read us this little story as we talk about, about this great book. Stephanie Meyer, of course, wrote it. Um, and the idea for Twilight came to her in a dream. On June 2nd, 2003. See, it's surprising um, to me that she has the date. Yeah. And that, that actually causes me to... I have a lot of questions about Stephanie Meyer and her motivations. And mm-hmm. I, it definitely causes... It brings me pause 
to imagine that she knows exactly when this dream occurred. Like, right. what's up with that? Like, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. No, Mark, That you point. would know the exact date. Like, is it, so what was it? So was it, did it come, like, at midnight on June 2nd? And, like, so, like, is that's the morning? Or, like, was it that night? Like, what day was it? I mm-hmm. Like, it's, that's, that challenges me. Yeah, me too. Um, So that, it it came there. And she finished the novel within three months. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so she the manuscript was finished on August 29th, 2003. Um, some interesting elements of this um, uh, is that the characters of Rosalie and Jasper were originally named Carol and Ronald. It's like, okay. Um, but this was the most interesting thing for me. Um, the Cullens were inspired by Meyer's own families. So that's interesting. As well as characters from the X-Men cartoon. Other influences on this series, which Meyer has acknowledged, include the 1847 novel Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, HGTV, and the films Iron Man, Somewhere in Time, Stranger Than Fiction, and Baby Mama. That's a really eclectic list of media. Uh, what's yeah. to me? What's sta- okay? So a couple things. Just HGTV. Just the the general. Yeah. So the general thing that I want to say about this is like that myth making surrounding the novel, any novel, the novel is a concept Mm -hmm. is really, really dicey territory in my opinion. And it only happens to these big books like Harry Potter and Twilight and things that become, Mm -hmm. you know, mass market. And it's really like the idea to me that like the writing process and like what is, you know, the birth of a novel and any piece of, writing not even just long form writing it's it's a really it's messy it's dicey and it sucks so this kind of myth making around like the writing process and how she had this dream and 3 months later like it reminds me a lot of um do, are you familiar with the work of Arundhati Roy who mm-hmm. wrote the novel The God of Small Things Mm-mm. um so she you know she's actually a very like I'm actually a very big fan of her like she's like a cool person Mm -hmm. um but when she this book the god of small things came out and um it was a huge smash hit and she you know sort of came out of nowhere and a lot of the like in like interviews around the novel and things like that she was like yeah you know I actually didn't edit this book I you know she like Mm -hmm. the whole idea was that she sort of sat down and just wrote the book and turned it in and it's unedited. And it's like, one, like, why does that matter? Mm -hmm. And two, like, no, you didn't. Right. And I think, I think like my, I guess to play the, the vampire's advocate. Oh my God. Here to play the Laurent's advocate (laughs) um, is, is that I'm going to say that I think Stephanie Meyer's brain and the way that it operates is probably different than how our brains operate. And I'm also going to say that, you know, she, like you said, like she was a housewife, right? Like, yeah, she is not maybe sitting down to write a novel like maybe me or you are where we're kind of jailed. And we are by both sitting down to write novels. Is, yes, obviously. Yeah. But she's not kind of jailed by her own sense of self-editing. And I think that's kind of apparent in how this book turned out. Yeah. I mean, what Um, Franny is saying is that Stephanie Meyer is in no way, um, you know, 
she is in no way sort of limited at all by a scope of good taste. Um, uh, she's she's also like not limited by like you know like literary like she this is not someone who is is coming in and being like yes like I need to impress my fellow peers in the literary community yeah you know, she's and I think we could all use a dose of that yeah yes yeah no, so 100%. I. I I actually I can believe that she wrote this all the way through. I do. I'm not saying I don't believe it. I'm not mm-hmm. saying I don't believe it. What I'm saying is like the sort of idea that like we're supposed to be shocked and in awe of this person for just sitting and down and writing this novel oh, yeah. in three months is like bullshit. And it's also like why like the fact that we know so much about you know how long it took her to write this novel what exact conditions led to her writing mm-hmm. the novel and like what the characters used to be named before she came up with other names for them it's like this yeah. weird sort of subgenre of like the it's myth myth making exactly. the, the white the white woman's um myth making yes and it's just like yeah. i'm like it's it's boring and it's also like it doesn't give us much actual substance to the question that I feel that is centrally at bar here, which is what the hell is this book about? And what the (laughs) hell is Stephanie Meyer trying to say to us? Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, when I say like, like the white woman's myth, like that is also like, so you mentioned JK Rowling, Suzanne Collins, Stephanie Meyer. These are all like white YA you know, middle-aged, I guess I'm assuming for Suzanne Collins, I actually don't know how old she was when she wrote this, um, you know, YA writers um, who are women. And I wonder if some of it, it plays into the marketing ploy of, you know, for better or worse, if the idea is like needing to establish, feeling the need to establish oneself so firmly and be so confident in the world that you've created that you're like, I just wrote it all in, in one sitting. Like, like the, the idea to not, not show a creative process behind it. I wonder if that's part of it. That's a really good point. And I think what you're getting at is, you know, trying like this idea that women sort of have to be like, they have to, there has to be something otherworldly that overcomes a woman for her to be able to produce a successful novel. Like, like the spirit, somehow she must be occupied by a spirit that's not just her own ingenuity and intelligence and creativity. Like something, there has to be this third force in this case of uh, Twilight, which the dream um, that occupies her and, you know, allows her to write the novel. Like it can't just be herself. And then I also think, this isn't what you were saying, but it made me think about it, is that writing a novel, no matter if it's, like, the best novel ever, is inherently embarrassing. Like, making up a story about a bunch <laughs> of fake people is, like, it's embarrassing. It's to cringe. Be like, yeah, it's it, cringe is. To write it a is. Novel. It is. Because it's, like, you made up a bunch of fake stories about a bunch of fake people, and you give them all, like, fake first names and last names, and they all have their yeah. fake little— Who do you little, think you are? God? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, so to be like, actually, this came to me in a dream and like the spirit sort of possessed me to write these characters. Like I didn't sit around being like, what if I had a little vampire boyfriend and his name was something fancy like Edward Cullen and my name was something silly like Isabella (laughs) Swan. Like it it kind of, it, it allows you to separate yourself from the inherent cringe that is, you know, writing fiction. Right. Exactly. You were like, I didn't have to like go on like namegenerator.com. Exactly. I mean, yeah, I go through that pain, you know, and obviously, yeah, I haven't written a novel, but like writing short stories, like 
the the name part of it is probably the hardest part and well, the most embarrassing famously, part too. Famously, Franny, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be specific about this in any way. But famously, yeah. you did name a character in a short story that you wrote, like essentially just a name that rhymed that with the know. name of yeah. someone that we know in real life, and the person was just the exact same person that we knew right. in real life. Yeah, and, and that's I okay. remember reading it and being like. Oh my God. Like she's like Franny has galaxy brained her way out of naming fiction characters by just being like, I'm just gonna run. Guess what? It's easy. You just kind of like shuffle them around. Yeah. And then I also feel like that's kind of a life hack is to be like name characters. And this person I, I do not know well, but like, you know, for instance, like uh in something a story that I'm working on, I just called a character Spencer. Like yeah. our, our good friend Spencer. And it's right. like, this person, I know that if this person reads it, they're not going to be like, is that about me? Because I'll tell them, I'll be like, oh yeah, I'm using your name in this. Right. It's just Or like Lisey, who's going to use our names in, in yeah. um, some in books. I don't know novel. when that's coming. Yeah. But. Yeah. Um, exactly. It's like, just, just pick and choose and it makes it a lot easier. Uh, but. Right. Um, I'm going to tell you at least my proposal, and we haven't talked about this, listener, but this is my kind of proposal for how I want to talk about Twilight, especially mm-hmm. the first Twilight book. This could get, things could get a little bit dicier as we move to the later ones. That, But I feel like these books are so iconic, uh, and we all know what happens, that right. we need not concern ourselves with plot specificities in this discussion, because it's like, it's pretty, pretty. And I'm sure people have done that, too. And, yes, you know, it's like, boy, girl meets vampire. Uh, other vampires try to kill girl. Yeah. They don't. The end. Yeah. And so, and I think with New Moon and Eclipse and Breaking Dawn, there will be some yeah. more. Certainly with Breaking Dawn, there will definitely be, be plot specifications we're going to have to talk about, if yeah. my memory recalls we correctly. Might, we might have to do a whole Renesmee, like, like yeah. charting, like, <laughs> where. Yeah, like, how Renesmee specifically was conceived and, like, what, uh what, you know, like, how that fucking happened and, like, mm-hmm. you know, the science behind Renesmee. We're going to have to get, like, a PhD candidate on here to, like, yeah. tell us some things about how that's possible. But so I think a fun way to start would be let's do a little thought experiment. That, like, let's try to, like, let's try to do a character sketch on Bella mm-hmm. Swan, our protagonist, because Bella, you know, if you know anything about Twilight, which I'm assuming every listener of this podcast has their own very specific Twilight journey and knows everything there is to know about Twilight, you know that Bella Swan is a controversial character mm-hmm. in that she's controversial because she is totally imparsibly bland, Mm-hmm. and, like, doesn't occupy, like, any sort of, like, space that makes sense. So uh, let's try to do a character sketch of Bella. So, like— Right. Physical appearance. Brown hair. Brown hair. S- like, slender but soft. Soft but slender. Pale. Wears such stuff like dark blue uh, blouse and— Dark blue uh, blouse is the only thing I can name that she wears. Uh, and, well, she paired it with a— a long khaki skirt. Which is insane. I'm just, like, in shock even, like, revisiting the point that Mm -hmm. she wore a long khaki skirt, which also something that we didn't mention is that this book arises directly out of Mormonism. Stephanie Meyer was a Mormon. The other big notable thing 
clumsy. She's always getting into accidents all she the time. This is what's, okay. So we all know this. This is like one of the central issues that people have with this character. Yeah. This is something that frustrates me. Because they we, keep saying it, but they don't really show it. They only start showing it when she's with, like, this is not, like, we get a whole hundred pages in this book before she even really makes contact with Edward, right? Right. Before she makes contact with Edward, this book is an incredible story about a random-ass girl who transfers high school and makes a bunch of new friends in, Mm -hmm. like, a weird small town in Washington. Like, I loved the beginning of this book because it was just, like, girlies going to high school. And, like, Mm -hmm. she's not clumsy before she gets with Edward. There's nothing. Like, she's like, oh, maybe I'm, like, not good at sports. But then as soon as she starts getting with Edward, the girl cannot get out of her car without, like, slitting her wrists on, like, the rust of her, like, fucking wheel wells. Absolutely. It's fucking, it's, it's intolerably weird. And we'll get more into it Like, I don't want to fully talk about the clumsiness theoretically right now, but, like, yeah, that's part of the character sketch. And that's really it. You know, she's from Arizona. Her parents are divorced. She's Mm -hmm. moving from Arizona to— Well, one more thing I I have to say about her, and this was something I just noticed upon this reading. Did you notice how much, like, kind of odd food talk there was in this book about Bella not eating? Yeah, so that's a big thing. Bella does not—and it's— It's really bizarre. It's just bizarre. Like, that's all that you can say about it without getting into, like, deeper theoretical Mm -hmm. territory, which we're going to get into. But I really only just wanted to gloss over this character sketch right right now. But there is, Bella will not eat. And it's, it's like, there's a lot of things, not just her not eating, but a lot of associations with Bella with food that are weird, inconsistent, and, like, Mm -hmm. You add to this idea that she is, like, not a real person. Like, there's just right. a lot of things about her that it's, like, I I can't imagine this person actually existing because it's so, like, she's a cartoon character in mm-hmm. a world where, like, other people are just normal. Right. And we, of course, have, and this is my screen name in our, in our squad cast record today, like, our, some of our favorite characters, a.k.a. Jessica, yeah. Uh, lovingly portrayed by Anna Kendrick in the film version. Yeah. Um, but some girls just being girls and girls just wanting drama. Yes. And that's really respectable. Exactly. In this world of of vampires and like, you know, teens meeting each other or like a teen and an 100 year old vampire meeting each other yeah. and immediately like declaring their undying love for one another and like eternal sort of like uh, internal sort of imprint on one another. Like, Jessica is deeply, deeply, like, we need her. Jessica's carrying so much weight in this novel because it's like, thank you, Jessica, for, like, bringing normality in, even in small doses. exactly. Um, Thank you, girl, for, like, being like, let's go buy dresses. Exactly. That's like, the type of energy I need in the and that was that was honestly my favorite scene in this book when they go to Port Angeles oh, or whatever. I so was like, that's good. so fun. I want to be there. I want to go to the Italian restaurant. I know. Um, Jessica, like, I want to read, like, they have all, Stephanie Myers produced all these fucking novels. Like, there's one called Midnight Sun that's from Edward's point of view. Mm-hmm. It's Twilight from Edward's point of view. And I want to read 
Twilight from Jessica's point of view. Like, why hasn't that yeah. been written? Where she's yeah, like, oh, yeah. this new girl came here. Oh, everyone's giving her attention. I'm kind of jealous. Okay, she's hanging out with that weirdo. Okay, now she's, like, not in school anymore. Okay, I'm calling her and telling her about my life. Uh, I'm going to the dance, all these things. Like, it's like, what does Jessica think of all of this, actually? Yeah. Like, um, give us the inside. So I just— The audience surrogate of Jessica. yeah. Um, so we've kind of established that Bella is just like the dumbest bitch alive who cannot stand up. Um, so let's do a quick thought experiment also as part of this character sketch. So if you're Bella, take me step by step through what decisions you're going to make regarding like just the big incident of this novel, that incident of, you know, Edward being a vampire. Yeah, so so she essentially meets this guy. She meets this guy in her biology class. Um, Basically, well, I guess she had seen him across the cafeteria before, and she's like, he's so fucking hot. He's her lab partner in her biology class, and essentially, uh, on that first day of class when they first meet, he is acting like she smells like pure shit. Like, this man is kind of bullying her to her... Like, he's, like, doing, like... He's, like, basically, like, holding his nose and be like, P-U, P-U. Like, yeah. he's... He is, like, He's, like, not, he's physically quaking and holding his yeah. nose. He's, like, you smell so fucking bad. And, yeah. like, for... Like, okay. I, I think this says a lot about that Bella's not a real person because in high school, like, what is the biggest fear, right? Or at least my was always that I smell... Yeah, and and I didn't absolutely, know it. yeah, absolutely. Or like, it's still yeah. my biggest fear. I was at school today, and all of a sudden, I was like, "Oh my god, I smell something bad," and I think it's my feet. And that was like yeah. during my first class of the day, and I was like, <laughs> "Oh my god, like this is it." All of these like vague like acquaintanceships I've built over the past fucking month and a half are toast because my yeah. feet smell like absolute ass. Yeah, similarly, uh, I was yesterday I was uh, in a Madewell dressing room. Horrible. And this woman walked in, and she, because it was just like a curtain. So she pulled it, she was like, oops, I'm sorry. She closed it, whatever. What was not embarrassing to me was that, like, you know, I was in my underwear. What was embarrassing is that my shoes were off, and she probably smelled my feet. Yeah. And that was, like, so humiliating. And I was like, yeah. I have to leave this store right now. Like, I can't even, like, deal with this anymore. Yeah, no eye contact with anybody who no. smelled my feet, dude. No. Um, so then after that, um, uh, Edward then famously saves her from the truck that's about to careen into her. And also, I have to say, that's not her being clumsy, is her almost getting hit by a truck. That's just, that's someone, like, slipping on ice. Um, the fact that that yeah. doesn't happen more often, the fact that we're not hearing once a week that there is some sort of fatal accident in right. a school parking lot. Because what happens is, and I said we weren't going to rehash plot points, but, you know, what happens yeah. is a guy from the school named Tyler is driving his giant-ass truck into the school parking lot, slips on the ice. Tyler the, moment. Tyler yeah, moment. <laughs> absolute classic Tyler moment. He slips on the ice and he goes careening and like, and he almost hits Bella. And somehow, out of nowhere, Edward shows up and like pushes the truck off. And that's kind of what right. first tips Bella off to be being like, "How did you get over here?" Right. And then after that, it's kind of like a little dance between them of Edward being like, "I'm so intrigued by you, but you shouldn't get close to me. But I'm going to give you the cold shoulder." Um, and him essentially. Uh, pushing her in and pulling her away until they go to uh, Bella, like goes out of town with a few friends to try on prom dresses. 
And there, because of course she wandered off trying to find a bookstore, you know, I, that's just I the type would of do girl the same thing. If they, these bitches, these ugly bitches are trying, or these hot bitches are trying on dresses. I'm a smart girl. I know that, you know, making myself pretty isn't for me. I know that that's not my domain. I need to find the closest bookstore until airhead style. Somebody scoops my big ass brain out of my body and puts it into one of those bimbos. They slosh it. Yeah, Yeah. they slosh it over into Um, any given bimbo who's just had an aneurysm. So Bella, then like four men like uh, try to abduct her basically. (laughs) Very dramatic. (laughs) Which is like, we are talking about a small town that nobody has ever heard of in Washington. She gets stuck behind like a warehouse where there are just dudes who are waiting for a woman to accidentally walk behind that warehouse so that they can abduct her. This they're like, it's like a video game boss or something. Like she's (laughs) like walking through this area and you can't get around it. You just have to go through to fight them off. They're like comically like swinging a wrench into their hands. Yeah. Um, It's like, it doesn't, it's like, she is somehow like and has ended up in like Brooklyn in the seventies, and she has <laughs> hey, no darling. Recourse. Come on over here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like it's just really like you know she's not streetwise at all. No, she's in Port Angeles, Washington. She's in like which, the Deuce. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's in Boardwalk Empire. They're like, yeah. come on, toots. Um, yeah, it's Come like, on, th- make my day. And, you know, there's just this sort of idea that's like, oh, well, you know, Bella can even find the sketchy parts of Port Angeles, Washington. And it's like, what? Right. This, and this that's is like, clearly love said about her. He's like, you could find trouble anywhere. And it's like, yeah. but she's really being quite, as she is in most of this book, like inactive in her decisions. Yeah. She's just walking around. Right. So Edward then again saves her and this kind of commences, you know, their actual uh, courtship. In that he, you know, in no, you know, in so many words tells her that she, that he is a vampire. Um, She then, of course, meets his family. We get the infamous baseball scene, the thunderball scene. This is what I'm trying to ask you, though. Okay. If you're Bella, what do you think in the beginning when all Mm -hmm. this shit starts happening? Like, he's all stinky, then he he thinks you're stinky, and then he disappears for several days and comes back. He's all cordial to you, and then he does all these weird things. What is going through you, Franny Comstock's head? I mean, honestly, like, like if I am placing myself in her shoes in this high school, I'd probably be like, okay. (laughs) I'd be like, this guy is showing me some interest. So that I would probably be like, well, this guy has such a crush on me. Um... But do you think, like, what do you think about the weirdness of it all? Like, what do you think he is? Like, what do I think he is? Um, I mean, like, drugs would have to be the most likely, (laughs) right? Like, (laughs) you're so right. Because I don't think I'm jumping to supernatural. (laughs) Like, I don't know. I just thought of that now because I'm like, there's literally no other, like, explanation. (laughs) You think this dude is, He's a student athlete. That's Yeah. No, that's incredible. I would probably, you're so right. I would probably think the exact same thing. I would be like, whoa, this dude is on some weird shit that I've never heard of. Like, that's what, like, because her whole thing is that she is. His eyes are so dilated. And his eyes are changing color. (laughs) And he, yeah, like she, but, uh, but first of all, who is noticing that their, their biology lab partner's eyes are changing color? Like, let me tell you about my. Yeah, my biology partner, when I was a sophomore in college, like, 
That girl was, you know, a, a sophomore in high school, excuse me. I did not take biology in college. Don't get it twisted. <laughs> that girl, all I knew was that she worked at Subway because she was always just telling me about how she worked at Subway. And she worked at Subway. I think if Subway. you work at Subway, you, you should be exempt from taking a biology class because you already know what all that mold, et cetera, looks like. You've been in a Petri dish, so you're all good. Because you live and work inside a Petri dish, yeah. you are exempt from biology if you work at Subway. Yeah. But that's, I didn't know what colors her eyes were. If her eyes changed color, I'd be like, get back to Subway, you bitch. Like, I don't fucking right. know. Like, it's, it's like people who like are, and like, okay, Sophie's having Wi-Fi issues. I can't see her, uh, her screen right now. Like probably if pressed, I could come up with your eye color, but I can't like, and I'm going to say it's like hazel, but I can't like, I, if you asked me if I was a hundred percent on that, I would have to say no. Barely anyone's eye color I can retain to memory. No, and I like uh, likewise. First of yeah. all, my eyes are not hazel, but I don't okay. hold that against Franny because I I also I couldn't tell you. I would I would have a better odds of guessing Franny's eye color if I put like four of the you know possible eye colors into right. a hat and drew one than if I were to just guess right now. And we've known each other for five years. Like yeah. Um, but how often am I? And I think it's I think if I remember actually in high school whenever I had a crush on someone. I would have to try to, like, I would have to, like, pay attention to figure out their eye color. Because, you know, in books where there was, like, oh, I was dreaming about his gorgeous blue eyes or whatever. That's not information that's readily accessible by my mind. No, absolutely not. And so, she, so... I think you're right that the the most plausible thing that your mind would <laughs> jump to drugs. would be he's on drugs. Because that explains... Right like 90% of what we're dealing with. Like not being able to control reaction to a smell. That's like, and when you're fucked up on like uppers, mm-hmm. if you smell something bad and you're to the point of no return, you're going to be like, oh my God, I'm quaking. It smells so right. bad. Like you're going to be going to a, a space of hyperfixation. Being if like you, pale and like sparkly, s- aka sweaty. Yeah, Molly. Yeah. Like yeah. this guy's just dropping insane. Oh, also like talking. Like she like notices how he talks. Speed. <laughs> yeah, he talks old timey. Like I could totally, if I was on enough Molly, I would definitely be talking old timey. Like right. top of the morning to you. Like what a beautiful yonder morning. Like I, I'm saying dumb shit because I think it's funny. Like yeah. If this You're is on real, that like, old English, <laughs> exactly. Like all of this shit. Being like, like instantly, you know, he's instantly able to identify what's in the Petri dish when they look through the microphone. Like, that's just the confidence of Molly, baby. You don't need to double check yourself. You're speeding Mm -mm. out of your mind. You know what that little doodad is that you're looking at. Like, right. um, Yeah, I think drugs is a good explanation. I think that I would immediately, and maybe not high school me, but more so college me, I would immediately be like, this dude, like, I need to be as physically far away from him as possible because yeah. he has like violent incel energy. Yeah. Because yeah. he like he's really weird about the proximity that he has to her upon their first meeting. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, telling her all these things like I you don't know what I am. Like you don't know anything about me. Like yes. yeah. you don't know a damn thing. Like well, you should stay away from me. All these things. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to take your advice and I'm going to peace and bebop on out of here. Like it, it's yeah, and in in terms of like a college guy, like yeah, it's absolutely it's the type of guy who um is like really like terrible to women but then is like 
like, I'm just so bad. Like, you can't fix me, basically. Yeah. Like, it's it's literally, like, the worst type of person. Uh, Have you ever had one and of And I these? was Team Edward. Have I had one of them? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. And and I, and I think I learned my lesson. Because in college, you do want to believe that you are the one who can change. I mean, not even, like, change someone. Yeah. But that you, you can, like, lock someone down. Or, like, the attention, no matter whether it's, you know, good or bad, is... Um, is, you know, something new. Yeah. So going off of kind of what we're talking about now, this, you know, the whole thing of Edward is he's like, I'm evil. You should stay away from me. Like that's mm-hmm. his whole, that's his whole grift. So right. this I is can't a book, control myself when I'm around you. Yes. All et cetera, of these things. Et cetera. Um, yes. So this is a book that's, you know, this was a book that in our time, like I talked to my aunt about this actually the other day. Um, and she was sharing a memory with me about how she took me and my friend Tori to, to the a library. Twilight, yeah, to a Twilight yeah. themed event at the library. Yeah. And she was like, "Oh my god! Like, I can't believe you're doing Twilight on the Twilight on the podcast." Because I remember taking you to the library to drop you off at this Twilight themed event. Like, that's mm-hmm. so funny. And I, we were talking about it, and I was. 11 years old when we went to this Twilight themed event. It was my, I was in sixth grade. Mm-hmm. I, I was 11 years old. And so were all of the girls at the event were aged, you know, 10 to 13. Mm-hmm. And I have not reread this book since, you know, my initial reading or two when I was 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. This is a book that is not about anything else but sex. But Stephanie Meyer herself doesn't think it's about sex. But this is, but that doesn't matter. This this is a book about sex and nothing else. There's nothing in this book besides sex. Yeah, it is so fucking horny. I also read this book in seventh grade. I loved it. I actually, I don't, this isn't the same edition that I bought them, but I I had this edition with the the movie actors on it. Yeah. Um, Just this little, you know, brick of a, of a paperback book. Um, and yeah, I I was, you know, obsessed with it. Um, yes. You know, I had, but, I, I've talked about my Pokemon podcast before, Poke News, that I had when I was a child. Uh, no longer available on the Apple iTunes store, but I did have a brief um, Twilight podcast as well, if that tells you anything about my obsession with it. So this is what I want to ask you, though, because uh-huh. I think that I feel sort of like, weird about this because I read this and I'm like overcome as an adult with just how sexual the book is, how it's all, you know, Stephanie Meyer can mm-hmm. say whatever she wants. She has to because she's obligated by like the whatever fucking blood contract that Mormons right. sign. But, you know, this book is, it's only horny. If there's right. one thing about this book, it's that it is horny, is that it is sexual. I don't associate, though, feelings of nascent sexuality in my youth with this book at all. I don't remember having any sort of sexual response towards this book as a tween. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's almost the text itself is is not. Maybe to me was not horny as a tween, but like like things that could branch off of it were like I like remember what? I read like a, like fan fiction. Like I read a lot of like fan fiction inspired by this after. Um, and that was, and then, you know, of course, like we have the fact that like 50 shades of gray came out of this, right? Like there's, there's a lot, but, but I don't think Steph, I don't think like, I think something about it, it does seem restrained 
and I and do you think that part of it is like as an adult reading this, we're like, well, of course this is about sex, but because there is a very like limited sexual contact in the book, yeah, like you know when you are of that age, like you have not experienced those types of feelings, you know, you're not going to understand that. But but as an adult, you're like, okay, this is what a horny high schooler thinks like. Yeah, I mean. I certainly think so, but it's I'm still having trouble I'm still having trouble reconciling this weird split that I feel in the differences of my reading as an adult versus my reading as a child. I'm like questioning myself. I'm trying to go through my mind about what appealed to me about this book as a kid because yeah. I don't think it was the horniness. I was 11. I think it was the writing. Because here's here's what I have to say. Uh, some of the exposition in this book is so, like, soothing to me. And Stephanie Meyer really has a way of, like, really talking a lot about, like, spaces mm. and just, like, mm. routines and stuff like that. All this stuff that, like, YA. Like, that stuff that I loved about the click. Like, yeah. the, the very, like, specific setting. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, like, a normalcy but not a normalcy in your life. You know? And it's not, like, a model land where, like, and this is something good is that I don't think there's a lot of um like weird terminology in this book. Yeah, I think you're it breaks right. down vampires pretty simply. And like yeah. that's a lot more that can be said than like uglies. Any you know, other or book that we've in. read. Yeah. yeah. I think you're right. That's actually because for some I was totally, you know, I listened to this book on audiobook mm-hmm. and um I was totally drawn in. Like I was really soothed by like, I absolutely, like, a, a lot of times if I listen to a book that we're reading for the podcast on audio, it's because I have a really limited time mm-hmm. and I want to be able to pair my workouts with my, like, reading time. Yeah. Um, and so usually it kind of feels like a chore and I'll have it on, like, super fast mm-hmm. and I'm just trying to, like, get through it. Um, this book I was really excited to, like, listen to. I, you know, was doing it while I was commuting to school and back. I was, like, listening to it while, like, doing my chores around the house. I was listening to it just, like, laying in bed. Like, mm-hmm. it was, it like, really nice. It feels very cozy. And so I, th- I think that you're right. I think that I just, yeah. like, the the rhythm of it feels very approachable, especially to yes. a young person. Like, there's nothing in this book. Like, you, I remember that weird time of being, like, a 12-year-old and, like, having this sort of, feeling the sort of transition between, like, children's lit and young adult lit mm-hmm. and then, like, um, you know, adult lit. And, like, if you were to, like, Twilight is a book that feels like an adult book, but it's written with the vocabulary of a child. Like, there's yeah. nothing that you're picking up and being like, wait, what are they talking about? Wait, exactly. what's, a, what's taxes? Like, what's this? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really quite accessible. And I think that says a lot because I read The Hunger Games, um, I think two out of three of them. I didn't read Divergent. And, you know, Hunger Games, I think, does this medium well, right? Mm. Like, there's a lot of story building, but from what I recall, there's not a lot of, like, specific slang that they use. But this book was so accessible as a teen who usually— because this this kind of kicked off that whole, like, supernatural craze, right? Like, I was not used to reading, like, supernatural books. That wasn't something that I, like— sought out. So, sure. so having this book be as accessible as it was, yeah. um, you know, was, was super interesting to me. And yeah, I think a lot of it is just like the ambiance of it essentially. Yeah. No, I think, and, yeah. and as an adult, I was still like, oh, this is nice. Yeah. Um, but 
you know, the ambiance of it is it's nice. It's all fine and good. But like like I said, I'm I it would be really hard for anybody to convince me after this most recent reading that this book is not just pure sex. Like right. to the point where it was making me uncomfortable and that I think I'm really going to be challenged by the forthcoming books and maybe more explicit representations of sex as they happen yeah. in Eclipse and Breaking Dawn. Like because yeah. it's so bizarre because mm-hmm. it really Stephanie Meyer you can say a lot of things about her she really is an effective communicator and mm-hmm. we are instantly in her head and kind of aware of all of the fucked up ways that she has been conditioned to think about sex yeah because going and you know reading like the wikipedia for this um prior to recording like there was like one thing where it was like, you know, the domestic abuse hotline or whatever, like put out a list and it was like, oh, here are like the fifth, like, like uh, Twilight meets every single criteria, like the relationship between Ellen Bedward, Ella and Ellen oh Bedward. That's a, that's that's a gender hard one. swap. Yeah. That's in my fan fiction. So I won't yeah. reveal that quite yet. <laughs> Bedward. Um, bet- Bedward. Um, between Bella and Edward, like meets all the signs for a domestically abusive mm-hmm. relationship. And honestly, that was challenging to read as, as yes. an adult reader because he really is like, he like doesn't let her make any freaking decisions for herself. It's like if a man like, yeah, like bullied you and then was like, oh, actually, guess what? I love you and you have to follow everything I say because I'm dangerous, but I know best. Um, So stay yeah. away from me, but I'm not going to make myself stay away from you. And I mean, I think specifically, I think about like um, with the way he's like, I can't resist you, like blah, blah, blah. Like, and, you know, it, I guess this is textual because, you know, even though he's presenting as a 17 year old, he is like over a uh, hundred years old. He's yeah. an old ass man. Like, it felt like very much like a grooming relationship to me. Like, him putting, him making it seem like it was her decision to get in deeper with him, even though he was propelling it at every step of the, every step of the way. Yeah, I, I'm challenged to call it grooming because I feel like. No, I, that's what it reminded me of. I don't yes. think it, within the text, it, it, like, it is. Like, I, I think the thing about him being 100 years old, it's like, it seems like his brain is still functioning like a 17-year-old, so. We've had we've well, certainly had riskier issues of consent on this podcast in terms of yes, like airhead, et cetera. Like <laughs> Yeah. That's one of the biggest things that's like going to that cha- has challenged readers and should challenge readers and will continue to challenge readers for as long as like you know, you can physically get a copy of mm-hmm. your, you know, if, if so for as long as you can get your hands on a physical, you know, or a digital copy of this book. So for all time, this will challenge readers. Mm -hmm. The fact that he is canonically a hundred years old and he is, uh, he is engaged with a 17 year old and it's not like, yeah, that's it. Like that's, it's just challenging. Like that's just part of it. And it's like, I don't even want to say like, oh, it's like barely addressed in the text or like yeah. it's only addressed in the text in this way. It's just like there's nothing about it that's like that makes yeah. any and he's, sense. He calls her like little girl and kid at that point. So yeah, he what, refers what to Jacob, who is yeah. two years younger than her as the child. Right. Um, what was the just, other book we read that like we talked a lot about like, you know, I guess like like mapping consent onto essentially like sci-fi. Like it it was something with age or with people like switching bodies. I don't think it was Airhead. It wasn't Airhead. What was that? I can't remember. Oh, it was it was um the Lauren Miracle book. Um yes. The one where they all shared one brain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so it's kind of one of those things what where like I forget what that book was called. I'm so sorry. Yeah. 
no, um, don't even think about it. But I yes. feel like there, there might have been another one, too, where it was, like, more, like, explicit of, like, someone is in someone else's body. Like, how does consent work? I don't know. We We can figure it out later. But, like, these issues... I do think it's like really interesting to talk about because this is not a real scenario, right? No. Like this this right. could not it's happen. Fake, in, it's fun. It's not it's never going to happen. Yeah. Right. And I was kind of shocked also reading this book by like how like Edward is the youngest but like it seems like the other people in his family cap out at like 29. <laughs> so like his parents but they like in my book in my memory it was like oh they are actually like operating as like a parent and child unit and I don't think that's necessarily true. Well, What's tricky about it is that it it changes throughout the book. There are moments where right. they're like, because like it's a little bit jarring because they're like, oh, like, you know, we this is how we present in public to like, you know, fit into the the like human life. Like we present as a family in traditional parent-child relationships. You know, the Cullens are like seen as like the foster kids of um mm-hmm. Carlisle and Esme. Um and it's a little bit tricky because that he's like El- bed bedward <laughs> now i'm gonna fucking say it <laughs> edward is saying to bella like well you know carlo's not actually my dad like we're kind right. of co-workers like that's like how he said <laughs> like we're like my boss he's kind of yeah like boss. they're kind of like they're like more they have like a collaborative sort of like coven like mm-hmm. relationship but they're, then, they're a commune is what you're saying yeah seriously like, that's yeah. basically what it is. But then there are these scenes where, you know, they're playing baseball and Esme, the mother figure, is like, come on, kids, like, right. no more fighting. And then, like, kids, like, remember to do this and, like, remember to do that. And it's like, okay, so, and then she's, you know, ordering them around and saying, you have to do this, you have to do that. And, mm-hmm. like, so it's like, okay, so which is it? That's just an inconsistency to me that is like, oh, this is an inexperienced novelist who, like, wants to have things both ways because she's trying to be logical, but also she's trying to have the presence of this familial relationship. Right. I think it would have been—I think, like, just, like, textually, like, it's just noted how many times how how young Esme and Carlisle are. Like, like 30— How young they look. How young they look, yeah. Because they are, you know, mentally— several centuries old. Yeah. Um, But how young they look. But I think that it probably would have worked better if they were like, you know, still young parents, quote unquote, but like in their forties or something. I, that, I don't know why that like threw me off. I think it threw me off too, because I was like, all these kids, you know, who are not actually related are having, um, you know, sexual relationships with each other to an extent. And they, they just could have easily had done that with, with one of their, you know, parents as well, essentially. Um, it, it's it's just it, very uh, odd to me because they yeah. are living like brother and sister, you know. But this is it's but less troubling to me. It's less troubling to me because I actually I will actually counter you in saying that the novel doesn't doesn't give us a lot, do us a lot of favors in a lot of aspects. But the novel does a lot to explain the family dynamic, and I mm-hmm. think that's partially owing to the like religious um, conservativity conservativeness of the author is that Mm -hmm. we have to be explained too many times that these familial relationships are not crossing those boundaries into like actual incest or like parent child dynamics playing out into sexuality. Like we are told, we know that we know that Esme and Carlisle 
have sex with each other. They are the right. mom and the dad. We know that they have been married. Right. We know that, um, what is his name, Emmett and Rosalie, and Rosalie have sex with each other. We know that they have been married. Mm-hmm. Um, we, like, and we are explained to over and over again the dynamics, specifically of the relationship between Rosalie and Emmett. They mm-hmm. present like siblings, but they do not put on airs even in the high school setting that they are not also a couple. Right. They, like, so I would say that that actually is something that is very clear to us, that those okay. lines are delineated where they are, yes, they live together as a family, but also there are certain sexual relationships and they're exclusive to things that fall within heterosexual normality. That's fair. Well, and speaking of heterosexual normality, I would like, to, I don't think it would be uh, an episode of our podcast without kind of diving into the queer aspect of it. Yeah, but so we you, have an <laughs> hour's worth of material on this. Right. Um, <laughs> for me, what really popped out was Bella, um, when she notices the Cullens in the cafeteria, mm-hmm. she's like, they're all more beautiful than the next. Like, I couldn't decide who is the most beautiful. And then she's like, maybe it's the girl with blonde hair. And she says that even before she says Edward, yeah. right? So Rosalie. Then later in the book, she comments that Rosalie's voice is almost as attractive as Edward's voice. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, I mean, like, there is a lot, there's a lot of thought about not only queerness in Twilight, but queerness, like, in fantasy, specifically fantasy pertaining mm-hmm. to vampires. So... You know, the most, like like you said, you know, we have these very sort of, like, um, visible textual examples of Bella being like, you know, Rosalie is pretty, all of the vampires right. are pretty, etc. But what's most interesting to me is the inherent queerness of the relationship between Bella and Edward, and specifically the, the way that Edward's sexuality seems to function in that relationship. So Jay Halberstam has done some writing about vampires and queerness and has this, um, they write that, um, you know, in general, if we're talking about, you know, vampires in literature, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the nature of the vampire is not lesbian, homosexual, or, or heterosexual. The vampire represents the production of sexuality itself. So like, This sort of idea that, like, the vampire with its sort of naked desire for, like, what we see throughout the novel, which is that Edward's, like, you know, I can't control myself. Like, I have Mm -hmm. to eat. I'm a monster. This idea of being monstrous, that's not just a metaphor for being heterosexual or homosexual. It's a metaphor for just, like, the way that desire works and sexuality itself. So, yeah. We know, then, that there are two things that are— sort of, quote-unquote, queer about Edward right off the bat, uh-huh. which are the fact that him and the other members of the Cullen family choose not to eat humans. They eat animals. Right. So that's one mark of sort of queerness if we are thinking about, like, vampirism as sexuality. Mm-hmm. And then two, his fellow Cullens, even within his sort of tribe, his coven, whatever— they are like he is seen as weird because he has not paired off with anybody. Like he does right. not socialize in the same way as them. They are like we have never seen him express sexuality. So like, what does that remind you of? It's like you know latent queerness, obviously. Right. Exactly. 
Yeah. And I was going to say, too, that just like kind of going off to like the queer theory discussion, and this doesn't directly relate to Edward, but like, um, you know, in the documentary, The Celluloid Closet, which is about like, um, you know, kind of gayness in or er, and queerness in early cinema before and like how that kind of was shown uh, through actors and directors alike, even when it mm-hmm. wasn't kind of noticeable to the general public. Um they do talk a bit about like vampire movies and like specifically yeah. like kind of like the lesbian vampire trope. Right. Um, and kind of, yeah. So like the othering of, of, you know, lesbians as being portrayed as, you know, vampires basically. Mm-hmm. So I think there's definitely a lot of precedent for this specific care or this like type of creature basically um, relating to queerness. Yeah. I just think there's a lot here. Like that's what was really jumping out to me in this yeah. reading was the way that, and also kind of even taking it into the physicality of what happens between um, Edward and Bella. He doesn't want to have penetrative sex with her. Right. He, like, doesn't feel comfortable with that. There is no penetration that is, you know, even right. hinted at as possible between the two of them. No, and so it's, like, it's like three or four kisses. Right. That's and so it. they're learning. And, the, and there's this all of this language about the newness of this feeling for both of them. And that they've both mm-hmm. had— you know, relationships that could be romantic, could be, you know, sexual even before this. But there's no, like, the language around this is, wow, I've never done something like this. I've never had a feeling like this. Like, that, the newness language to me is very queer. This idea Mm -hmm. of, like, they have to learn how to be together physically in ways that don't break normality. Yeah, that's a really good, that's a really good point. Yeah. Right. Like, they are, in ways they they don't don't have, like, any sort of, like, you know, uh, framework for Exactly. And, like, also being, like, what are the boundaries here? Like, we don't even have a playbook here because it's so, like, it's so outside of normality. And how do we appear normal? Like, what do we do? Like, there's this whole scene where How do you negotiate that? Exactly. Like, Edward is insisting to Bella that she introduce him to her father as Mm -hmm. her boyfriend, which it's in the text. It's kind of explicit that this is, you know, she's like, oh, this is weird. And it's like, this is a hint at the fact that he's, you know, 110 years old. Right. Like, this is like a very classic thing. Like, nobody today would do this. But, you know, back in 1901, whenever the fuck he was born, like, you were having to sort of have your father be like, this is my escort for tonight. This man, he's my boyfriend. We're courting one another. Um, And there's, but that to me, Red, is very like, well, how are we negotiating in this relationship what is normal? Because we don't have the framework of regular heterosexuality. So, like, what are we going to, how are we going to present within a family? And, like, mm-hmm. what will that look like? Um, also, just the idea in general of Edward being like, you don't know what I am. I'm monstrous. You should stay away from me. X, Y, Z. Like, that's also, right. like, there's a lot of, you know, yeah. queerness within that. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, it's pretty... It's it's pretty obvious when you start to think about it. Like that's what I was just thinking about the whole um the whole time. Yeah, like I think definitely that's that's a, a big aspect of it. And I am interested to see kind of as we explore more of the this series, like where the sex stuff goes. Because mm-hmm. yeah, there's also the idea that like if I start, I can't stop. So yes. that's both I guess I can you can take that two ways. Like number one, the thing we we're talking about before, like with kind of like the douchebaggy like, you know, uh, late teens, early 20s guy of the idea that, yeah. like, like well, you know, you get me so hot, and, like, once I start, I can't stop. Yeah. That type of thing. And then, yeah, the other idea of, like, if I dip my 
it's like, you know, what's that? There's this like comic, this like very short uh, comic strip about like uh, this, this girl who like draws horses. Have you, do you know what I'm talking about? No. It's, it's basically like, it's um, uh, like a, a lesbian metaphor for the idea of like horses, like don't know like how deep the water is before they like put sure know, their, like hoof sure. in or whatever. And then like, so the idea there being like, I can't even explore my feelings right. towards other women or I guess girls. Cause it's, it's from the child's perspective because like, I don't know how deep that will go. So true. like, I yeah. can't, I can't go in. So there, I think there's that avenue yeah. for it as well. That's so that's, yeah, that's incredibly, yeah. that sums it up completely. What seems yeah. to be happening here, which is that both at, Ella and Bedward, Jesus Christ, you've <laughs> diseased me. You've infected me with your vampire venom. I know. Um, both Bella and Edward have a sense that they are totally out of control about what they might do in this relationship. And that's also then can transition us into there is sort of like uh, maybe you could call it a feminist reading or just something that is something that approaches a feminist reading about like sort of the um the power of female desire the fact that her sexual and her desire is almost explicitly sexual oh yeah um, she wants to fuck him yeah yeah the 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 idea that her sexual desire is so so powerful and so all encompassing that she doesn't care that he's a monster and doesn't mm-hmm. care that this is explicitly, she knows from the first sentence of the book that this is what will kill her, whether that's actual, real, like, death of consciousness or, mm-hmm. you know, like, transitioning into a vampire and therefore yeah. ending her human life. I, I also like, think, like, one thing that I'm thinking, and this is, like, a totally other, a, a, a different reading, which could also be, like, a feminist perspective, but in a different way of, like, she is going to, we know at some point in the next four books, make the choice of, do I want to be a human and like stay with my family and my friends, et cetera, or do I want to essentially be with this man forever? You yeah. know, in, in even though there's supernatural elements to that, that's a choice she's making. Like this could be in some ways like a metaphor for um, the like, you know, bounds of heterosexual marriage totally. um, and, and how people can, who may not want that for their life can still find themselves like, like trapped in that. So like making, you have to make a choice between one or the other. You can't, she cannot have both. Yeah. So I was reading before we hopped on, I was reading this article by a uh, a woman named Sarah McEachern who like wrote a blog post about Twilight and was talking about how like she grew up in like a strict purity culture, like as an evangelical Christian in the ways that Twilight really spoke to that generation of girls Mm -hmm. um, who were growing up you know, obviously they spoke to the whole generation of girls, as we've said, but specifically the relationship that girls in, like, evangelical, like, purity-centric cultures had with Twilight. And she writes, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is very, uh, very smart, what Twilight understands and portrays perfectly is the enormity of a first sexual experience, the intensity that can weigh on a young person, the threat of danger, the prospect that love can deliver anyone from their darkest impulses, the potential for radical metamorphosis, um, which I think is, you know, like what she's saying is like it becomes a metaphor for as a young girl around this age, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, all of a sudden 
you're faced with this choice, which is like, what, like, how are you going to navigate sex? Mm-hmm. And especially to young women, this is seen as like, you will go from being a virgin to a non-virgin. That right. is a radical Irredeemable choice. Yes. Yeah. Whether or that's not an irreversible choice, I guess. Yes, I should say. Exactly. And so in this case, you know, that's metaphorized as like, is Bella gonna choose to become a vampire or is she mm-hmm. gonna choose to stay human? And like once you make that choice in either direction, you're not going back. Right. And so I just thought that was really interesting too, because yeah. maybe even these young girls, when we're reading this book, we don't fully pick up on that. But because we have the language of sort of female purity on our minds, this idea becomes comfortable to us. Like we understand what's at stake here. Right, exactly. Um, and, you know, like I I think I'm really excited, like, as we move forward with the, these, this series to explore all these different avenues, because I think not only does the text itself, like, is there so many things to explore, but yeah, like the reception to these yeah. books, the craze, the way that it was like such uh and, and, you know, even we can talk about it, like, you know, within media as, as, you know, all, all the like parodies, I guess, and vitriol mm-hmm. inspired as mm-hmm. well. There's just a lot of things to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited too. And, and something we didn't really talk about, one of the most challenging parts of this text as a whole, which will be better discussed in New Moon Mm -hmm. because it's way more central. It's really only a blip on the radar in this book, which is the way that native culture is brought in to these novels. It's just absolutely bonkers. And that can just be kind of a a taste for next week because it's like there's way, like we don't even have enough in the text yet to, like, be able to form a good theory yeah, on, like, and, what's going on here. And that's but, also something that, like, and I didn't do enough research before this. Like, I would love to, like, look into, like, some, like, native writers, like, thoughts on this, definitely, because I don't think that I have the framework myself to, like, say much about, about you know, this beyond what she's kind of, the obvious, like, othering. Um, yeah, I mean, well, it, of, it yeah. certainly didn't stop Stephanie Meyer not having, right, exactly. not having the framework or the sort of <laughs> weirdness because it's, like, what we're immediately from, you know, so, like, Jacob, who ends up being a werewolf, who's really only a, a blip on the radar in this book to introduce us to him, and his father are two characters who are from Bella's past. Um, she was friends with them as a child. Jacob's father is, like, best friends with Bella's father. Mm-hmm. Um They live on a nearby um, tribal reservation. And the portrayal from the first sentence that these characters, like, enter the text, the portrayal is explicitly just chock full of stereotypes of Native Americans. And it's really bizarre because it's, like, it's totally used as a vehicle for, like, nothing. Right. I mean, but I think we're going to get into that, like, and unfortunately, like, with the werewolf of it. And like, the werewolf of it all, yeah. Yeah, and that, that you know. Because it is explicit, and once again, like I said, this is just a sneak peek for to New Moon. We're going to have a lot more on the table next week to discuss this. But from my understanding, don't think about the movie because if we take into account the movie, things change. From my understanding of reading this book, vampires are all white and European, mm-hmm. and— any other yeah. form of mythical creature or quote unquote monster is some other race. Like the monsters yes. are specifically racialized. Vampires yeah, and they're are the white. bad ones. The, the, yes. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah. I am certainly like, that's going to be a deep kind of 
shithole to dig into. But it also uh, might not yeah. be because there's not there's clearly not much intellectualness that went into it. I can tell you right now that I'm sure Stephanie Meyer's thought process was, well, what's another like ancient sort of myth-centric culture that I can bring into this? Oh, I know. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. it's it's just very bizarre. So I just, you know, we'll talk yeah. more about it in New Moon, but it is it's like it brings it kind of full circle into like this idea yeah. of myth-making of the female author and like what we're trying to uncover here is like what is actually happening. Yeah. And, and again, what, this is the like lifelong, the podcast long like discussion that that we have and the fight that we've had with so many of these supernatural books is that anytime you get into something as a metaphor for something else and you're like making an entire group of people like an other, like you're going to get into some risky, uh, like racially motivated territory. Yes, exactly. And I think I'm sure that we this will not be, you know, shied away with this one. No. All right. Well, I think we've... Um We've gotten a good we've gotten a good start on the uh on the Twilight business. Is there anything else you want to say before we uh wrap this one up? Um no, just that I mean like I'm looking forward to it and um you know, I I would say if y'all want to read along for Twilight Month, totally. read along for Twilight Month. The book looks long, but it's really it's it's a very very quick read. Trust me. I was able to get through this very quickly unlike Ugly's Cough Cough. Yeah. Uh other books that we've read. This is the actually the kind of book that is fun to read. Like it's not it doesn't feel like a chore. Like most mm-hmm. of the books that we read on this podcast at this point feel like <laughs> you know, I'm clocking those we, as billable yeah. hours. Like yeah. <laughs> um, I don't want our listeners to think that doing this podcast is a chore. It's not a chore. Sometimes reading the books, the reading the books most of the time is not the fun part. Yeah, listen, the the fifth time that you've met A you you get you get a little bored of him. Yeah, it's just yeah. Oh, and as people, I think I think as people have pointed out, we did get bored of the click books. Which yeah, sorry, we did yeah. <laughs> and maybe one day I've thought about this before. Like Revisiting. maybe one day, yeah, we could revisit those dark quarantine era ones. I think I think so. Yes, because we I think that our frame of mind. I mean, this is uh, not a regret that I have, but yeah, like I wish that we did not start off the podcast immediately before COVID hit. Yeah. Um, mentally, I was not in a good place, as I'm sure many of us uh, were not either. So I right. don't think I'm alone in that. So be kind to yourselves and be kind to us. And also check out our Patreon. Like we said, all of the Twilight movies, which I don't even, we don't even have a schedule in place for that yet, but it will be happening. So you are getting so much Patreon content this month that you're not even going to know what to do with it. Um, so subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash girls like us show. Find us on social media and tell us about your like weird Twilight experiences at yeah. Girls Like Us Show on Instagram and Twitter. And check out all of our sorority sister podcasts at frolic.media slash podcasts. Yeah. Um, theme music is by the wickedly talented lady. And see you. Bye bye. Bye.